Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825 on the phones. Do uh, give a call. I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Just a bit of a preview here. We will, of course, jump right in in just a moment to what happened in Charlottesville over the weekend. A tremendous amount of uh, of, uh, anger, anxiety, and uh, political vitriol spewed uh, afterwards and and mayhem on the streets. Neo-Nazis marching uh, in in Charlottesville, Virginia, a town I actually know... uh, quite well uh, from my from my youth maybe i'll tell you that personal side note later on but certainly not a place i ever thought would be uh the battleground of what are extremist movements uh, a few of them different versions of right-wing extremist movements and of course the antifa group that clashed on the street with them and led to a, a woman being uh, murdered on the streets and 19 other people injured and you see the video of it all and and there is uh, obvious concern that all Americans share whenever you have well violence like this and also groups espousing such uh, naked and vile racism uh, and just the political discourse now bleeding over into well bleeding over into blood in this case bleeding over to actual violence uh, it's it's troubling, uh, troubling to say the least. And I, I know that by the time you're hearing me, you've already likely gotten most of the or, or picked up on the, the details about what happened. You had a, a march in Charlottesville, Virginia, with uh, Confederates and uh, or neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists, and then counter-protesters, including members of a group called Antifa. And this then broke out into... Uh, some street battles, there was violence caught on it, because everyone now carries a video camera and the instantaneous dissemination capability of a smartphone, so you have people walking around live-streaming this, and now it's turned into a massive uh, political back-and-forth, a a debate over just how much uh, or how representative of the right is this, uh, this group of white nationalists that were marching in Charlottesville, and and then Trump's response to it. I'm less interested in Trump's response than many others are, because I think that Trump at some level just doesn't want to respond to anything the way the media demands that he respond to it. I think that Trump doesn't doesn't like it when he's told that he has to he has to denounce something in a certain way. Uh, I think that he just has a bit of a personal revolt against that you can think that that's because he just hates the media so much or there's a an impetuous streak in him or or i don't know i mean you you can call me and tell me what you think about it but it seemed like an obvious 
decision under the circumstances just to condemn the violence and the uh, white supremacists, uh, which he did do later on. I I get uh, the the statements have already been parsed a lot. They've been analyzed. I'll do that in a little bit. But more to the more to the the center of the discussion right now. The reason the media is so focused in on this, the reason the whole country is so focused in on what happened in Charlottesville is because they are making the case. Many people are making the case that this is a natural progression from within the Trumpist movement, from Trumpism, that because of Donald Trump, and this is what the media is saying, this is what is out there now, and you can go to any number of Democrat-leaning or leftist websites and read some version of this, and it's that Donald Trump has created the environment where this kind of hate will flourish. Now, I think that that's not fair. Um, I think that it also absolves a growing and uh, much more widely tolerated and even accepted uh, group of authoritarians or fascists on the left or anarchists. It really depends. But uh, anti-speech radicals on the left, most notably anti-fa, anti-fascist action. I'll talk to you more about them in just a moment as well. Uh, But that has been going on now for months. And I I guess I I have a I have a different focus than many others on this, because you don't need me to come here and and sit in a radio studio and tell you that racism is grotesque. You you don't need me to tell you that racism is both a a logical and moral fallacy. I believe that you believe that. So there's a part of me that feels like, why is it that whenever we discuss this, I have to first start out by doing the the requisite denunciation of neo-Confederate, neo-Nazi imbeciles, right? Because if I don't, then maybe maybe I harbor some glimmer of sympathy for their cause or something, right? So... uh, Sure, I I, I can't more forcefully denounce them as racist, but I'm already I already feel like I'm or denounce them as as idiots and racist. But I already feel like I'm wasting your time because you know that. And I at some level think that the president most likely also feels that way. We we really need to hear Donald Trump say that uh, Klansmen or neo-Confederates or white nationalists or whatever they are. Are, are losers and, and morons. Now, I think he should have said it because it is true, and I think he feels that way, but I think he also, at, at some level, resents that the media now plays the denunciation game. Did you, do not, did you denounce it fast enough? Did you denounce it forcefully enough? You know, what words did you use in the denunciation? How specific was it, right? When really this is about, and I know, I'm, see, I'm, I'm already drifting into an analysis of, of Trump's language, When really this is all about, is the conservative movement now in this country, or actually, let me retract that, is the Republican Party in this country now at some level making common cause with white nationalists? I tell you the answer is no, but there are many people who want to make that case. And in fact, many of the counter-protesters, Antifa, the people who showed up at that to, to oppose that rally in Charlottesville have believed for many months that they are fighting against a fascist white nationalist regime. 
And that has been the justification for their violent and authoritarian actions. So this has been, we've been heading towards this for some time. Uh, But this is where we have to be very vigilant about what terms we use and what we allow the dominant perception of everyday good Americans of all backgrounds, ethnicities, race, creed, and color. color. Uh, We have to be careful about what their perception of the Republican Party is after this, because trust me, and I think you already know this too, but this is the more interesting discussion. They want to use this as, see, this is really Trumpism. This is really what Trump is all about. This is really what the Republican Party is all about. Even though if you were to line these two groups up, and and that's what I am offering to you, we do now. Like I said, racists are morons. I hate them. I've actually, I, I can tell you this, I've never met somebody who at least would ever tell, I've literally never met somebody who would tell me, not even that they were a white supremacist or a white nationalist, but that that was okay at all or that they had any friends like that. I have met and spoken to uh, anarchists, radical leftists, Antifa members, black bloc participants, people who take it upon themselves to destroy property, threaten violence, shut down speech. And they're proud. And not only that, they've got professors that back them up. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here or I'm getting ahead of where we are in the conversation. Uh, You don't need me to sit here and, and denounce racism because we already know. Uh, And it also, I think, is clearly a game that the media wants to play right now where they they want to see they set this standard up for who denounces. And once you've denounced, then it's, well, did you denounce it fast enough? And were you vociferous enough in your denunciations? If the answer is no, then they can start to to go after you a bit as they as they have with Trump. And uh, I'm sure there will be others. As well, including people that are that are de- defending Trump's response to all this. But you see, the denunciation request is always followed by the and oh, by the way, even though you've denounced it, this is still representative of the Republican Party. I mean, th- this is still a much bigger issue. Just denouncing it does not separate you at all from the mass culpability that they want to inflict upon everybody else who had nothing to do with this. So you see, it's media says Republicans should denounce this. Republicans should denounce this. And most of them do or all the ones that I've seen have. Right. Maybe they didn't do it fast enough or that the media didn't like it as much as they wanted to. But they denounce this. And then it's okay. you, You notice how all the Republicans have to denounce this. Maybe there's something there. Maybe it's because they feel like this is more representative of them. You see, it's like the Republicans doth protest, you know, or doth denounce too much, I should say. You know, because they're speaking about it, they're tied to it. Once they have to say that this isn't us, well, maybe it is kind of them. And this is the game. I know you're saying, but come on, that's so unfair. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing to Trump, for sure. And it is what they want to do to the entirety of the Republican Party right now. They want to make this about how this is... The tip of the iceberg, part of a much larger whole. But now let's let's take that for a moment. I, I just told you, and I can speak from personally, I can only speak from my own experience on this. I've never met a white supremacist. I've never met a white nationalist. Um, and I have never even met somebody who would tell me, even in confidence, that they had any sympathy for that whatsoever. Now, you could say, well, people, 
people know you, Buck. They know that you would think that that's gross and you'd call it out and you'd, you know, you'd get aggressive with somebody that would. But not everybody knows. Right? You, you figure at some point someone would have said something. Now, that's not to say it doesn't exist because clearly it does exist. And I know that this is where I already see the assaults coming from the left. Oh, you're saying because you haven't met one. It's not a real thing. No, I'm not saying that at all. But we're trying to get a sense of the scope and scale of the problem. We are a country of 320 million people. If 500 or 1,000, or I saw different estimates, 2,000, I I think that was the biggest estimate I saw, 2,000 people who are neo-Nazis, white nationalists, white supremacists, if 2,000 of them exist in a country of 320 million people, and they are denounced by every political party, they are ostracized and hated in polite society as they as they and their their views should be. How how much of a concern is this really going forward? Now, I'm not saying it's not a concern. I'm just saying what you're seeing now, of course, is people say, oh, this is the real forget about Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. These are the real this is the real terrorist threat. And I say, well, there, there have always been. I, I've studied this and, and I shouldn't even just say studied it. I worked on this. When I was at the NYPD, we, we were looking at white supremacist terrorists. We were looking at what are termed domestic terrorists, although that's kind of a sloppy term. But I can also tell you that the white supremacist terror unit and also there was an anar- we, we looked at anarchist terrorism, anything that could cross on the New York City area radar, which means basically everything, right? Because all roads at some point lead, lead to New York one way or another. Uh, whether they're you know getting their funding from here or they're having a rally here or meetings here or you know terrorist groups all some way or other all passing through New York somehow. And I can tell you that it's not that the white supremacist terrorist groups were uh, non-existent. It's that the people that uh, the people that covered that as their area of responsibility, the uh, members, the intelligence specialists I knew who were working that issue were working other issues too because it was just not a very busy account. And in the counterterrorism world, this is how you think of it. You, you cover an, an issue, an area, and you work those cases, or you, you look at that um, slice of the, of the pie specifically. And jihadist terrorism, very busy. White supremacist terrorism, it's there, but it's just not very busy. There's not a lot going on. The threat level is much lower. The possible casualties are estimated at being much lower and have been much lower. So this is this is now that the first thing we have to do is put the march into that into a context of how much do we really have to worry about the rise of of white supremacist terrorism or white supremacist violence of any kind in this country? And the answer is we have to be on guard against it. But we, we're already winning this. We're winning this ideological battle, meaning that these people are hated and they are reviled. And they are denounced across the board. Now, we'll get into another layer of this, which is, well, what about on the left? Can we say the same thing about Antifa? And can we look a bit at what the ideology is of some of the counter-protesters who were there, who granted didn't kill anyone this weekend, thankfully, but may in the future. And we need to take a look at all the different aspects here. All right, we'll, we'll have that and more. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything 
we hold dear as Americans. To anyone who acted criminally in this weekend's racist violence, you will be held fully accountable. Justice will be delivered. As I said on Saturday, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence. It has no place in America. And as I have said many times before, no matter the color of our skin, we all live under the same laws. We all salute the same great flag. And we are all made by the same almighty God. We must love each other, show affection for each other, and unite together in condemnation of hatred, bigotry, and violence. We must rediscover the bonds of love and loyalty that bring us together as Americans. We are a nation founded on the truth that all of us are created equal. We are equal in the eyes of our Creator. We are equal under the law. And we are equal under our Constitution. Those who spread violence in the name of bigotry strike at the very core of America. Two days ago, a young American woman, Heather Hare, was tragically killed. Her death fills us with grief, and we send her family our thoughts, our prayers, and our love. We also mourn the two Virginia State Troopers who died in service to their community, their commonwealth, and their country. Troopers Jay Cullen and Burke Bates exemplify the very best of America, and our hearts go out to their families, their friends, and every member of American law enforcement. I don't see how the president could have made a, a more clear statement. He singles out groups. He says, denounce in the strongest possible terms. And then he expresses uh, sympathy and condolences for the family of the woman who was killed. Uh, the driver of the vehicle is already facing second-degree murder charges. He may be facing hate crime charges. And, and Trump is also was also speaking about the officers who died in a helicopter crash trying to provide safety for the uh, protesters during this whole situation. Um, it's, as, it's as good a statement as I think anyone could ask for. Now, that was the second statement. I understand that, and I'll play you the first statement, which got everyone uh, so agitated over the weekend. I'll do that after the break uh, and talk to you about what I think, well, what I believe to be the thinking behind it. But I should just note right now that the denunciation that I just played for you, and I really wanted to give a lot of it to you on air here so you could really hear it. That's not, a, that's not enough for the press. They don't care. They act like if he denounced it strongly enough, there would be some credibility or some credit, some good faith that they would give this administration and this president. But that's not true. It's just, it's just a game that they play in the short term. Denounce it and denounce it. And then he finally does. He denounces it as strongly as humanly possible. Then they say, well, sure, he denounced it, but... He's still kind of responsible for it. So let's talk about that now. That's that's the way they do it in the media. We'll talk about that. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Closely following the terrible events unfolding in Charlottesville, Virginia, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. 
on many sides. It's been going on for a long time in our country. Not Donald Trump, not Barack Obama. It is no place in America. What is vital now is a swift restoration of law and order and the protection of innocent lives. So that was the first statement. And what got everyone so upset at the administration, and look, it, it, clearly it was enough that the administration had to come out and give, that the president had to come out and give a separate second address on this issue today. Uh, and I am happy in a sense that, that, that they did that and then immediately moved on to this uh, executive uh, executive memorandum or executive whatever it was, this ex- executive statement on uh, China intellectual property. Uh, but and we'll we'll get to that in in a few minutes too. That'll be coming up later on in the show. Um, but a lot of focus, of course, on what happened with Trump and this whole uh, first response. The problem is the is the on many sides. That's what got everyone really. Uh, upset here and there are a few levels of that i want to approach on this first of all why not just get it right the first time this is so obvious that any speech writer now did trump i don't know was it in the prompter did he go off the cuff here um but saying on on many sides there's just no no reason to add that in when you know that that's going to uh, in inflame the debate even more, or the the coverage of this even more, because it is it is viewed as uh, w- white supremacists gathering together who are representative of something that is bigger than just a group of a group of you know violent idiots in one city in one part of the country. Um, but and it has ties to the administration in some ideological way, not direct ties, but there's some connective tissue between this movement in Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville, and the White House. So you know that they're going to make that the story here. So why not just cut that off as quickly as possible and and just do the right thing, which is to get look some of the words he used condemn the strongest possible terms. I mean that's that they were close to getting it entirely right. But that they have to come out and make a second a second go at it seems to be an indication that, OK, they, they wanted to to clarify. But on this notion of the many sides here, here's the problem. I don't think there is any group in the country that is more universally hated than KKK, neo-Nazi, white nationalist types. With the except, with the possible, well, with the exceptions of outright criminals, right? In in some cases, people who are, you know, pedophiles, rapists, murderers. But in terms of people, just for their beliefs, I think the most hated ideological subset of our society would be the KKK, white supremacist, neo-Nazi types. Um, I, I think that is a pretty clear case you could make, and so. Whenever their invo- their involvement in any issue immediately elevates and uh, elevates the issue in the national consciousness and also aggravates racial tensions, racial divide, political divide along with it, of course. And the, the administration should be cognizant of that. They also should know that there any opening. And I know I, I think some of you would probably say to me that Buck there. They're going after something small here and making something bigger out of it. Maybe you'd say that, maybe not. Maybe you think that Trump's first statement was 
But why even give the why even give the small opening? You know, this is the big leagues. You're the president of the United States. You have people who are helping you, who are writing speeches, and and you have to prepare for this moment. And there should be no no opening, no opportunity to impugn the president's denunciation of what happened in Charlottesville here. They, he should not have. Pres- so in that sense, it's a misstep. It's an error because there should have been no opportunity whatsoever. And by the way, I, I don't even think that necessarily would have prevented people from saying that Trump was. You know, if he had given the perfect speech, there would be people who say, well, that's just a speech. Trump's a liar. He actually, you know, he actually supports some of the tenets of white nationalism. I mean, that, that's you're going to have that no matter what. Why not be a little bit more um, clear and precise in your usage of language to forestall that from from happening here um, or prevent that from from occurring? So that's uh, that's a part of this as well. So why the mistake? Because I, I do think that, look, it was a mistake because I had to redo it. So why? And I should note that here the off the cuff Sometimes uh, some would call it uh, extemporaneous, others would call it sloppy communication strategy of this president and of the people around him has been written about countless times as well established. We all know, uh, you know, last week it was Trump's going to because Trump talked about Kim Jong Un's rhetoric. We were about to go to nuclear war. Right. So they're always saying that his loose rhetoric is is a problem. And in the case of. North Korea, the loose rhetoric became the story with Kim Jong Un and the Trump versus and Trump versus Kim Jong Un because it was well. See, Trump is he's reckless with his words, and that could drive us to nuclear war. So they liked running with the line of the loose talk, you know, irresponsible verbiage. But now you'll see that there's a there's a shift that happens, right? All of a sudden, no, no, it's not that Trump does. It's not that Trump has loose talk or his. His messaging is imprecise and soft cup. No, here there's a, and again, I'm just giving you what the opposition narrative here is about Trump and the administration and with it, because the Republican Party's fortunes, for better or for worse, everybody, are tied to this administration right now. Uh, they're not giving, they're, they're not making that the story. It's not Trump should have been more precise in his language. It's, oh no, he said what he meant here and he's just hiding some sympathy for it. You see, if they had applied the same standard with North Korea, it would be, oh, no, he really does just kind of want to go to nuclear war with North Korea. Like, he just wants to nuke North Korea, which is crazy. He clearly doesn't. But they wanted to make it sound like he's he could accidentally draw us into a conflict because of the way he talks about things. Now it's, oh, well, he may accidentally, or rather, it's not that he accidentally didn't give a good statement. It's that he actually secretly harbors some sympathy for these people. You see, the, the standard changes. The way the media talks about this, the standard uh, changes. Um, and you had the Charlotte, the mayor of Charlottesville, I should note here. Now, now we're going to get into a bit of how this was framed right away by people trying to score political points as not just the, the president being uh, inept in his initial denunciation of it, but that the president is somehow, I know, brace yourself, is the cause of this. It created the environment for this, which this was going to happen no matter what. You got you got white supremacists fighting with people on the street. One of them runs somebody over or runs a bunch of people over and kills a person. And this is going to be about Trump and Trumpism no matter what. So people are, of course, jumping on the issue right away and trying to score as many political points as they can, including the mayor of Charlottesville. 
Well, look at the campaign he ran. I mean, look, look at the intentional courting, both on the one hand, of all these white supremacist, white nationalist group like that, anti-Semitic groups, and then look on the other hand, the repeated failure to step up, condemn, denounce, silence, you know, put to bed all those different efforts, just like we saw yesterday. I mean, this is not hard. There's, you know, there's two words that need to be said over and over again, domestic terrorism and white supremacy. That is exactly what we saw on display this weekend, and we just aren't seeing leadership from the White House. Now, because you had, I should note that if you did not have the, if you did not have the one individual who is now going to stand trial for murder, running his car into all those protesters and the video of it, the storyline here would be would be different. You would still have vile, hated, white supremacist group marching, shouting Nazi. I mean, they were shouting Nazi slogans. I mean, these guys were just the, you know, the worst, okay? But they, in part at least, squaring off against Antifa. Now, I know there were also just counter-protesters there who were just there to say that they hate Nazis, and they're right, right? Nazis are bad, so they're right in that. But there were some Antifa elements there who were armed, and who were engaging in street battles. So it would be a very different storyline had you not had the individual who ran his car into the crowd, killed someone, wounded a bunch of others. Uh, it would still really, it would still be these uh, white supremacist grotesques, but there would also probably be a little bit more room to even talk about the fact that. Since when did counter-protest movements include people that show up with with batons and and spray paint cans and masks and that's a count that's a counter-protest movement that sounds like something else and it's something else we've seen other places across the country but that's now completely that whole part of this storyline is completely overwhelmed by the white supremacist terrorist act kills people that's what everyone's focused on um, so. Uh, I do want to take your calls on this. 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of lines lit. We will take them and uh, get into much more, including we'll move on to Trump's talking about China. I, I think this is one of the least covered or under covered in terms of the amount of time on it issues of, of our time, which is the amount of intellectual property theft and all kinds of information theft that's gone on with China. I think it's really at the civilizational level, meaning that this is going to be we're going to be feeling the effects of this and China will be feeling the benefits of this in decades to come for four decades to come, maybe even more here with you in the Freedom Hut. We've got uh, oh, we're about to go to calls. But first, you may have seen some of the photos over the weekend of all these uh, white nationalists marching in Charlottesville carrying tiki torches which led to a whole lot of um a whole lot of people who were making jokes about you know how th they looked like a you know this was like the the great racist frat party or something and people were saying you know why are they holding tiki torches well tiki tiki the brand actually released a statement that said they're not associated in any way with the events they do not support their message or their use of products in any way our products are designed to enhance backyard gatherings or to help family and friends connect with each other. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, but that shows you how, like, people are terrified even when it's so clear they had nothing to do with this. I mean, the Tiki company has to release a statement saying, look, we're not like the, uh, we're not the official sponsor of white supremacists. We have nothing to do with this, okay? So, yeah, I mean, th these white supremacists in Charlottesville, they're, they're, 
nationally, uh, you know, their their popularity level is is close to like the plague and child molesters. I mean, these are not people who have support. These are not people who are are about to uh, you know take over take over the country. But anyway, um, oh, let's get into some calls here. We have uh, Phil in New Hampshire. Good to have you, sir. What's up? Whoa. Hey, Buck, thank you very much for taking my call. I, I uh, just barely got off the phone with your screener, so I was a little shocked. But uh, thank you for the show. And I, I, I got to mention real quick first that I've used you for a couple of years as like a uh, a calming start to my day, which starts very, very early and usually ends very late. And uh, I use you and your words to uh, to filter things down and go, OK, here's clearly where we're at. This is, you know, let's Let's get rid of some of the crap. And then I do dive into uh, Hewitt. Uh, by the time he comes on, I'm ready to hear it. And uh, I've, I've moved to Doc Thompson because those guys are too funny. And it's like, I need humor before I hit Gallagher. Uh, what I do for work allows me to listen to the radio. I was going to say, you, got a lot, you cover a lot of radio territory, my friend. Well, what's on your mind with regard to... Th- thank you, first of all. What's on your mind with regard to Charlottesville? I, the, and, and I couldn't hear what was going on while I was on hold, but the Charlottesville thing, I... You know, it, I, I just don't even know if I need a tattoo on my forehead that says uh, I don't like the KKK. You know, I and a tattoo on the back of my shoulder that says I go. I want to go kill him if I could. Uh, you know, clearly not true. But that, you know, I got to stand in with with Trump disavowing all the violence, all the hatred. Some of those groups that were there are actually kind of sponsored by, organized by, funded by the left. And, you know, you and I are both used to uh, disavowing evil things every time we wake up. The left really never does pop up and say, hey, you know, we're not a part of Antifa, although, you know, maybe you maybe you are the uh, the Black Panthers. I want to stay way away from last I knew they, uh, you know, they had a very legitimate start in this world and a reason for being and not. you know, I don't know that their name getting tossed in there is, is that good. I think they've actually done some. Well, I, I mean, I can say that the, the ideology of Antifa is that, remember, they're anti-fascists. Why are they anti-fascists? Because they believe the Trump administration is part of a rising tide of fascism in in this country. A lot of people who aren't, I know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but a lot of people who aren't Antifa believe that. Now look at what happened in look at this group in Charlottesville these these with this uh, white supremacist gathering right this white supremacist rally um, y- you don't you don't have people who are tenured professors you don't have people with big uh, media platforms and 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 people who are uh, who are prominent and respected in society who are like yeah you know I I wouldn't do what they do meaning I wouldn't march with the tiki torches and do the sig heil and all that stuff but I but I I agree with them you do have that on the left when it comes to fa- like Trump is a fascist and we need to take violent action to stop him that's widespread so and, and, and I should note that know, while people will argue with me on this you see that they want to say that on the what I'm saying is false, right? That on the right it's actually widespread, on the left it's not. I mean, this is the center of the debate right now, and I, I mean, I, I think it's. By the way, I don't think it's as widespread on the left as as some on the right want to believe it is. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of people out there who vote Democrat, you know, because they're they believe in big government and they're pro-choice and they're not anti-fa, right? I mean, this, this is I'm not saying that. You will get a lot of people though who will say the uh, what is it, the converse or that on the right you have. A much more uh, a much more deep attachment to this white nationalist stuff 
than anybody on the right wants to believe. And I just think that that's not that's not just unfair. It's it's dangerous for that to get out there. I, I agreed. And, and I'll, I'll tell you not to not to butt in, but I know you've got limited time. And I, just a couple of things that you touched on. One is, you know, a lot of us kicked back and had to watch and listen to somebody throw a flag down in front of a vet and burn it and walk away from it and the left not disavow it. And it was at a leftist rally. And we've had to watch people march down the street and request that cops are killed. And there has been no formal violence against that. That has been allowed. And uh, so, yeah, no, like I, in, Phil, in I actually have to run into a break, but I, I appreciate I appreciate you calling in. But on his point about about uh, Black Lives Matter and the violence from some people, again, a very small minority overall of those who have marched in Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, but um, I've heard the rhetoric, and it's it is bad at some of those rallies. And you will notice, though, that this is also where the media plays favorites and the bias of the media becomes so very clear. You have people who are, again, at all the major networks, the, the opinion makers such as they are, when there's a, a, a mass killing of police officers, uh, it's n- not indicative of Black Lives Matter, even if the guy who did it says he's a member of Black Lives Matter. When there's a Bernie Sanders supporter who tries a mass assassination of, of members of Congress, it's not indicative of Bernie Sanders supporters in love. But when there's a, a, a group of, of morons and one of them, a group of idiot white supremacists, and one of them runs somebody over the car, oh, it, it's like Trump's fault right away. I'm picking up some of the ominous reporting about uh, North Korea. I want to let you know I'm still... Watching that issue closely, I know that there are uh, some some reports out there that North Korea is moving some things around, and there's some cause for concern about a possible, well, we don't really know what, just North Korea doing something really uh, provocative or maybe even really stupid. Uh, but I'm, w- I'm watching that closely, and if I have more for you, I'll certainly uh, break in on on the show with it. We'll, we'll probably up you on North Korea tomorrow. I want to talk to you in some detail about Venezuela tomorrow as well. Uh, so many, uh, not just lessons to be learned from an economic perspective, but also the security risks and the narco-trafficking going on out of, to, to the United States, by the way, and the connections to Mexican cartels with, uh, with elements in every major U.S. city and the connections to Venezuela. I, it's, Really scary stuff, as well as Venezuela's, Venezuela's, uh, pardon me, Venezuela's connectivity to uh, Iran, uh, uh, to Syria, to Cuba, uh, Russia. Name a country that we're concerned about, and Venezuela and the regime, the government, Maduro, um, his vice president. This will be. I'm going to tell you some stuff tomorrow about Venezuela that you're going to be like, what? That is crazy. So that's coming up um, later on. Uh, some more, just a, a few more things on this uh, this march. There was a solidarity against hate march in Seattle. People were, I mean, I'm seeing all these photos now online, too. I, I dug into it a little more in the break. People are burning American flags. People are uh, attacking police. Uh, they are writing profanity everywhere. This, where are the demands from Democrat politicians to condemn this? This happens routinely now. This happens in Seattle. It happens in Portland. It happens. I've seen Black Block here in New York City with my own eyes. So, I mean, it happens all over the place. Where are the denunciations of this? 
Um, no, they'll just say, oh, they have a First Amendment right. And speaking of First Amendment rights, which is a true statement, but it's also a, it's often a, a dodge. What do you think about this? Well, they have a First Amendment right to say it. Okay, but what do you think about it, politician? You have thoughts about everything. You're a politician. What do you think about this? Oh, they have the First Amendment rights. Democrats get it. And the media lets them get away with that. The Democrats get away with that all the time. Uh, but speaking of the First Amendment, I see that Texas A&M has canceled, this is from the Houston Chronicle, canceled a White Lives Matter event uh, that was scheduled for September 11th. This is this is now uh, going to be a recurring theme, I think, where you see groups, uh, there will be viewpoint discrimination taken, including at uh, public facilities, public universities, public areas, maybe even of cities. They're going to say, sorry, no, no neo-Nazis here. They've forgotten that whole Supreme Court case with the, the neo-Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, right? They, they're, they're going to uh, abandon this because they don't want violence. But they're also going to be abandoning in the process the principle of, of free speech, which, as much as it may pain many of us and as much as it is discouraging as a society that these people exist and that these viewpoints exist, uh, you either believe in free speech or you don't. Uh, you believe that people have the right to espouse uh, hateful views or you do not. Um, and once you start to see there, there are so many negative effects and and. Uh, so many corollaries to this that I find uh, disconcerting. Once you see White Lives Matter movements or whatever they're called uh, banned from the public square and place after place, you will also see a surge in people who say, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe I am uh, uh, breaking through to some truth that's being hidden from me. It, it turns it into a forbidden fruit situation when really we should let these imbeciles expose themselves for all to see. Uh, we've got a lot more. We'll be right back. Oh, wait. I th- sorry, I thought we were running a break there. My bad. That, that'll that happen sometimes in the live radio. I was like, wait, it just happened. Um, I did say we talk about China. I, look, I, I can speak to you about this issue the, uh, the uh, whole show, and I won't because I know there are other topics. And like I said, next hour, we have a couple of guests joining next hour. Uh, Britt McHenry, formerly of ESPN, will weigh in on how she thought there was a Blue Lives Matter, a positive Blue Lives Matter story that came out of Uh, the uh, violence in Charlottesville that's worth telling. Rich Lowry will join with his point of view. National Review was really taking uh, the Trump, well, taking Donald Trump himself to task over his response to this. So we'll hear their their POV, their point of view on this. And then I'll talk to you a bit about the Google firing, some more recent thoughts on it, and also uh, to mellow things out for us at the very end to, uh, I'll tell you about me sharing some wisdom with the younger generation this weekend. Over drinks. We've got Jay in New York on the line. Hey, Jay, what's going on? Buck, how you doing? Shields High, man. Thanks so much for taking my call. Shields High, thank you for calling in. Yeah, man. So I uh, just wanted to talk about how it seems so coincidental that the Democrats had their biggest loss in, what, the last 150 years or so, and all of this kind of backlash and all of this um, upheaval happens to be happening in the last you know six or seven months and it just seems like there's a lot more at play behind the surface whether it's the activist groups um like black lives matter or whether it's antifa just kind of coming to the surface and creating all of this tension and to me it just seems like it's a lot more to do with stuff that we don't know about um that's kind of behind the mainstream media 
that maybe isn't quite at the service, and I'd love to hear your... Uh, Jay, Jay, I would love to respond, but I feel like you're, you're moving around the thesis instead of, of running right into it. So tell me, okay. what, what are you... When you yeah. say things so, happening behind the scenes, I mean, you're giving me almost atmospherics about the political situation, right, no, totally. but what, what do you think is behind the scene, or what do you think we're missing? So I think there's... I mean, obviously people throw around the terms like deep state quite a bit, um, but it, it does seem like there are forces in play who stand to profit off of chaos in the United States and who see a guy like Trump and they say, if this keeps happening, a guy like this who's so anti-establishment, then we're going to lose our jobs and it's going to be just a totally different um, experience than what we've seen in the past. So I guess it's just a lot of um, kind of, um activist groups behind the surface. That, that's what I'm saying. You know, so yeah, the activist groups are doing the bidding of uh, of others who are afraid that they will lose out because of Trumpism in some way. I mean, I, I think I think what you're what you're getting at or or at least what it makes me think of, maybe that's a, a better way to put it, is that Trumpism is in many ways a uh, a political revolution against a ruling class of elites, uh, of of Democrat leftist elites, and that includes media, uh, academia, uh, a, a lot, uh, although not all, but a lot of uh, major financial institutions, big law firms. Uh, Trumpism is a revolt against not just those elites, but also those who are dependent on those elites and who... Uh, subscribe to ideologies that are propagated by those elites. So you have wealthy, uh, coastal, blue state uh, well, uh, elitists, if not elites, who also have the identity politics that they are are sharing with others who are dependent on government or who view uh, oppression by government or others as the result of their ills. Trumpism is a is a big counter uh, counterforce counter reaction counter punch to all of that and so with that you have people in the media in political circles in financial circles who aren't just uh, fearful I think of their position right of their actual privilege being taken away from them in some way as a result of Trumpism whether that's true or not I mean fear is not always based in the likeliest of situations uh, but I think even beyond that they don't like to think that they don't like to believe that it's possible that if Trumpism triumphs, it may in some way undermine how they got there. Meaning, you know, if you are someone who's at the top of I mean, I can speak most specifically to the media game. If you're a big J journalist at CBS and finally you've got somebody who's saying, you know what, you guys are actually political hacks and you've been riding on the coattails of previous generations of better journalists to get to this point, and really you're lying to the American people and you've been exposed for what you are, uh, you don't want that guy to win. You know what I'm saying? You don't want that guy's belief system to win out because it's a repudiation of how you got to that place. It's not even just that you disagree with them. It's you aren't who you think you are. Is Do you see what I'm saying, Jay? I mean, I'm trying to go a few levels deep yeah. on this. but no, That's exactly the point I was trying to get at, Buck. It's, it's exactly oh, all right. Well, look, well, look at that. I'll take it. <laughs> all right, Jay from New York. Shield time, man. Thank you for thank you for calling in. See, I managed. We managed. Jay and I together managed to get right to the heart 
of the matter. Speaking about journalists who don't want their positions to be uh, in any way threatened and, and how they got there and all the rest of it, you had Acosta at uh, the Trump press conference today. On the way out, here is what CNN's chief political correspondent, who is also the one from like, do you know what the poem says on the Statue of Liberty, sir? Do you know what that poem says? Stanza one, line three, rhyme two. Uh, here's what he said about, or here's what he said to the uh, President of the United States as he's leaving a press conference. So- Can you explain why you did not condemn those hate groups by name over the weekend? They've been condemned. They have been condemned. And, and why are we not having a press conference today? You said on Friday we'd have a conference. We had a press conference. We just had a press conference. Can we ask you some more questions then, sir? It doesn't bother me at all, but you know, I like real news, not fake news. Give fake news. Oh, we didn't get the part of the end where Acosta says, don't you think you've... Okay, sorry, just so you know, this was the part I was referring to. Right after Trump says, you're fake news, as he's leaving, Acosta yells out, don't you think you've done your... Don't you think you've spread more than your fair share of fake news uh, to the president on the way out, which I thought was... This is the the magic of, of Twitter, if such a thing can be said, because it is a magnifying glass into the political equivalent of that rim of of uh, or that ring of, of filth around the base of your toilet that's what that's what Twitter does it shows you just the most uh, slimy disgusting and horrific parts of discourse on a regular basis unfortunately but it also has its usages or its uses and one of the great things about Twitter is and they don't really understand this the the journalist class, is that they seem to think that we don't remember, we being the reader, I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about you, everyone else, right? That that we can't see the biases that are on display and remember them, and that that doesn't affect our perception of what their next report is. They seem to be under the impression, that whether it's Twitter, I mean, J- Jim Acosta, he's all in, he's, he's, re- he's hashtag resistance at CNN, he's hashtag resistance, right? His job is to undermine and, and destroy this presidency, fine. I actually am kind of, I mean, you know, I, I don't approve of how he's doing it, but at, le- at least it's out there. At least we all know. But with some of these people, you know, the New York Times, you'll get uh, Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman. You know, they're doing all this reporting about the White House. And, you know, they're they're right there with the democracy dies in darkness crowd of the Washington Post. Right. They're the people that are doing the real journalism. But they'll let some tweet fly. That's just, you know, Trump is uh, is a moron and I hate him. I mean, that, that's not what they say, but it's they might as well. And then an hour later or a day later, they want to do some report on, well, this is what's really going on in the White House, and we're just reporting on what's happening. It's like, well, you, you can't have it both ways. And so we see them now in a way that they weren't exposed before because it doesn't. there's no filter. It doesn't go through editors. So we know who these people are because they're sharing with us all the time who they are. And with, uh, with Trump, I think that's a very—or in the Trump era, that's, that's been a particularly potent phenomenon— because we know they're exposed. And, you know, there's there's my ap- approach to sharing information and to, I, I guess, what would be journalism or or punditry, uh, po- polemics, uh, po- being a polemicist, which is just tell people what you think and, you know, be accurate on the facts, but tell them where you're coming from and they can make their own distinctions and decisions. What the New York Times, Washington Post, and these others do is, no, no, we're still journalists. We, we don't we don't have a political axe to grind one way or the other, which is now just outright laughable. I mean, it's just nonsense. And I mean, Acosta representing CNN is doing the same thing. Doing the same thing. Uh, 
So I, I want to, uh, I, I, yes, I wanted to get into China. I wanted to get, <laughs> it sounds like I want to go there. You know what I mean? I want to get to the issue of China. And um, I, I was thinking maybe about doing more analysis of uh, the whether whether it's accurate to really call this an act of terrorism or what the other factors are at play that I would want to know more about before we could say it's it's terrorism. Calling it a, a hate crime is also an interesting, what happened in Charlottesville, a hate crime is also a, an interesting debate because the target who was, or the woman who was killed at least, was a was a white female. So w- what's the, hate crimes are very specific about protected groups targeted uh, as part of the motivation for the act. Uh, now if it's, you know, what's the targeted group here? Is it somebody who's a counter-protester? Are they are counter-protesters now covered in statute for hate crime? And the answer is no. I don't think he tried to run over... First of all, I don't think he tried to run over anyone specifically for anything other than being a protester who was there. Right? So it's not a... Although, I don't know, maybe he tried to run over somebody because he saw a certain skin color and he hit other people, too. But these are the factors that I have to know. And I'm not the only The Washington Post is having this debate out in the open, right? Is it a hate crime? Is it a terrorist act? Maybe we'll revisit that tomorrow. We have some more of the specifics of the case to work with, too. But that's certainly out there now as well. Uh, Kevin in Arizona. You're on Buck Sexton with America Now. What's up? Hey, buddy. Hey, what's hey, up? Uh, I'm good, man. I'm all right. Hey, uh, uh, well, I'm enjoying the, uh, it's a cool 105 over here. Hope you can come and visit sometime. <laughs> yeah, nice. Arizona uh, well, is I'm, now added to my list along with Mississippi of places I'm going to just continuously say, I need to visit that place because I've never been there. So, uh, Look, I'm calling because I have a real concern about uh, the implication of this, of what's going on now, especially with these marches, with, uh, you know, with basically these race relations. Uh, I, my concern is with... Uh, education, really military education. And let me preface it by this. Uh, recently, I read a book about the the Russian-Afghan war. Uh, it came out, I don't know, like a decade ago. But probably the most interesting about this book was the preface. And that was, did you know the Russian general staff never did a formal study of the war? And the reason was, well, one, because they lost it. But the, the other reasons were, it did not fall under Marxist ideology. The war, the cause of the war, the type of war, it did not fall in, in the ideology, so it didn't happen. And I, I'm, I'm really starting to see this kind of, uh, I don't know, if this kind of pro- this intellectual or anti-intellectual progression going towards history. You know, I, I'm a graduate of VMI, and people don't know, we were the West Point of the South during the Civil War. At, and at VMI right now, there's a huge statue of Stonewall Jackson. So my question to you is, when's that going down? Oh, are, are you, uh, yeah, the, the the whitewashing of, of history here? Is that, I mean, this is an, I thought about getting into this, maybe tomorrow we'll have to, because this is a movement that, in the short term, I think there's some, you know, feel-goodism about it, right? It's, well, we want to get rid of this guy who fought for the Confederates because you know, we, we, you know, oppose racism. And, well, we need to get rid of this statue. And that obviously was a part of the Charlottesville thing that had to do with uh, General Lee. Uh, but when do we decide the Washington Monument comes down? When, you know, <laughs> when, when do we decide that uh, the, the Jefferson-designed uh, rotunda at University of Virginia has to come down? I mean, what are the outer limits of this uh, ideology of anything touching? Uh, when does Yale University's name go away? As I've said before, Elihu Yale, look it up if you want. He was a slave trader. 
I don't think Yale is going to want to drop its name anytime soon. So, you know, th- there are no outer limits to this. Uh, the whitewashing of history, you know what? It's a, it's a, it's a great question, Kevin. And um, I will, I'm going to put this on the agenda for tomorrow's show because I've already got a few things. I'm running long here. I, I went longer on the Charlottesville thing than I wanted to today, but that happens sometimes. I want to take a lot of calls. Your call is great. Let me, let me think about this because I want to talk about the erasing of history. It is very. As a concept, the erasing of history is very Soviet. In fact, the Soviets would even go in and remove people with an exacto knife, like their names from the official hard copy documents. I mean, so when they erase people, they really erase people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me uh, we'll we'll come back to this tomorrow. I'll, I'll say that to you. So give me a give me a, a time delay on this one. I'll come back to it. But Shields, hi, Kevin, and thank you. And uh, China and the Trump statement on that on the other side of the break. Stay with. We will combat the counterfeiting and piracy that destroys American jobs. We will enforce the rules of fair and reciprocal trade that form the foundation of responsible commerce. And we will protect forgotten Americans who have been left behind by a global trade system that has failed to look, and I mean look, out for their interests. They have not been looking out at all. This is what I promised to do as a candidate for this office, and this is what I am doing right now as president. Ambassador Lighthizer. You are empowered to consider all available options at your disposal. We will safeguard the copyrights, patents, trademarks, trade secrets, and other intellectual property that is so vital to our security and to our prosperity. We will uphold our values. We will defend our workers, and we will protect the innovations, creations, and inventions that power our magnificent country. Thank you, and God bless America. Okay, so Trump signs this executive order uh, that would make the U.S. trade representative, quote, examine China's policies, practices, and actions with regard to the forced transfers of American technology and the theft of American intellectual property. China is, when it comes to intellectual property, secrets of all kinds, just trying to steal steal, uh, everything. I mean, they they are... uh, coming after us with, with everything they can on this issue. And, of course, because of the cyber world we live in, intrusions meant to just get information are easier than ever before. You know, it used to be if you were going to steal trade secrets, you got, you had to get a guy or a gal inside the company or you had to have someone who was physically at least in the country. Now you can steal trade secrets. You can steal stuff sitting at it from a computer terminal somewhere. You can, in fact... Steal the lifeblood, uh, intellectual lifeblood of, of a company in a matter of minutes. Uh, if you're a good enough hacker and you've got enough access. And what's the response to this? Now, I like that Trump is shining a light on this issue. And and it also ups the pressure on China. You know, this is all part of the leverage game of getting China to do more on North Korea by putting pressure on them on the intellectual property theft front. It gives us another lever of, okay, well, look, maybe we won't go all the way on this, but you got to give us a little more on North Korea, right? They're using the tools at their disposal, Trump and the administration, to push for action in a number of ways from China, uh, North Korea being the most notable one right now, uh, but also to, I think, push lawmakers and the American uh, federal uh, agencies to find ways to protect us against this threat of China stealing. I mean, we are in information-based economies. Information and technology are essential advantages in commerce, on the battlefield, uh, as as I said, at a civilizational level, at a determining 
the future of humanity level, being an information powerhouse is essential. And if you can steal the secrets of the other guys of all kinds, you get a tremendous advantage. You can catch up and maybe even surpass them. And that's the game. That's the long game that China is playing against us. And we should wake up and understand that right now uh, we are not prepared for that fight. All right, welcome back, everybody. We have been discussing uh, Charlottesville today here in the Freedom Hut. It was quite a weekend. Violence, mayhem, and a lot of concerns about the response from the administration. But one group that didn't get nearly enough attention in all this, police and first responders and those who are trying to keep protesters safe and doing so under very difficult circumstances. Well, Britt McHenry joins us now. She was formerly with ESPN, and she's now a writer, reporter, and journalist, and she wrote up on The Federalist about this issue. Charlottesville shows once again why blue lives matter. Britt, great to have you. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Please tell me a bit about uh, your piece. How did Charlottesville show us that uh, the cops are essential in all these processes? Yeah, well, so as everything was unfolding Friday night and Saturday morning, an image that stood out to me, and I I still don't know who the photographer is and whoever it is uh, deserves an award for, for that photo because it was very powerful, this image stood out to me of a police officer uh, doing his his duty, protecting and serving the community. And behind him, there was a congregation of KKK members, white supremacists, everything that we saw, so much so that people actually thought the photo was taken from the Charlottesville protest. So it was being shared, I mean, ugh, just 20,000 retweets, favorites on different accounts. It was being shared everywhere. And I myself posted it on my own personal Facebook page because I can't imagine the type of strength that would require from an individual. And it was then brought to my attention who the police officer was, Darius Rico Nash of Charlottesville. And that was actually from a protest the previous month in, in July. So still recent, but not what we witnessed on Saturday. And it stood out to me because all of these people, um, especially more left-leaning, you know, liberal (laughs) sports journalists I know and and different Twitter accounts, which I don't mind following because I think it's important to have a lot of different perspectives on any issue. But a lot of these, these individuals were sharing that photo. And these are the same individuals who were really criticizing police officers and supporting Colin Kaepernick in his protests and ignoring when he wore the socks with the, the police officers depicted as pigs on them and just really creating him as, as a hero and always criticizing every little thing about our law enforcement. So when I saw that photo in connection to those same individuals, that's what really inspired me to write um, and to, to hit the keyboard because I just don't think our police officers get enough attention. And sure, the, the, our justice system isn't perfect, but there are police officers like Nash who have to put themselves in danger and face some really awful things, and they don't get any accolades. They don't get any attention. So I think it was good that that photo was being shared, that people could see that, but I wanted to add more of a voice to it. 
I, I think that a, a, a police officer, particularly an African-American police officer, who is standing guard and ensuring the rights of protesters, including neo-Nazis, including mm-hmm. white supremacists, uh, does tell us a lot about what law enforcement is like in this country and and how seriously and, and how faithfully uh, they execute their their oaths uh, to serve and to protect. Uh, but I know, Britt, that you also have, have uh, raised awareness and, and talked in the past about uh, kneeling during the national anthem. I just wanted you to speak to that for a few moments, because I mean, you as a former sports reporter were, were particularly close to that issue as well and, the, and the, the disrespect that it shows for our armed services. Absolutely. I, I, I sort of stayed away from it during the season last year because, as I said before, I was a reporter. So I never knew if I would be sent to cover a 49ers game and, and cover it from a strict reporting perspective as to what was happening on the field. And as you know, I mean, there's different roles. If you're a columnist, if you're a host and you have your opinions, it doesn't necessarily mix if you have to do on the ground reporting work. So I had sort of stayed silent. It always bothered me. Um, The daughter of a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force grew up on Air Force bases. There is just, in my opinion, very few things that are that disrespectful to our country to just kneel, sit, and speak out negatively against our country and our national anthem, which is what he did. But I remained silent, and in a lot of ways I had to, given where I was currently working in that specific role that I was in. But it wasn't until the 4th of July when Colin Kaepernick tweeted something about not being able to truly celebrate America, that just burned me. I I went to the library the next day and and wrote a blog that ended up going viral because it really upset me. And I think it upsets a lot of conservatives and a lot of people who see their loved ones go off to war and want to do the right things. And, And I applaud Kaepernick for donating to charities. He's put his money where his mouth is in certain respects, but I still will never support that form of protest or a lot of the things he's demonstrated in doing so. We're speaking to Britt McHenry. Uh, she is a reporter and a journalist. Uh, Britt, uh, also on the on the issue of, of sports journalists, because you were formerly with mm-hmm. ESPN, and I know that you saw a lot of uh, what people refer to as, and, and you don't have to comment on this part of it, but MSNBC mm-hmm. with sports. Uh, w- were you surprised at how left-wing a lot of sports coverage, meaning the actual journalists, the people looking at these issues, uh, how left-wing it is, and also was there a, a pretty widespread anti-police, anti-law enforcement feeling among some of the journalists, or is that just the perception that you might get from watching some of the more vocal players who are very, uh, again, Kaepernick kneeling and other things like that that happen? But were, were the journalists also particularly left-wing on these issues? I think a lot of the more vocal ones uh, in positions that are hosts that sort of have that, that microphone, so to speak, have tended to lean that way um, across the board. And, you know, Clay Travis, actually, uh, he's a friend of mine. He writes for Outkick Coverage, his own website. He actually wrote an article just today on this topic about um, a a possible television show in sports he was going to do, and he was told that he could not talk about 
conservative viewpoints or politics at all, like on his social media and everything, because it wouldn't mix with sports and advertisers, which I thought was pretty interesting. So he had declined that show. I just am sort of wading through those waters now myself for the first time, because I feel free now to be vocal and it's really liberating. But in that process, I've noticed that it's predominantly more left leaning. Um, (laughs) You can judge by some of the responses on Twitter, social media I've gotten, but what really motivates me is that not to use a cliche, but I think in some regard, the silent majority of a lot of people out just in the streets that I've met shopping, running errands. It's interesting. More people have kind of stopped me because of my opinions and the pieces that I've written to say, Hey, I love what you wrote on Colin Kaepernick. Thank you. Thank you that someone said this than anybody asking for fantasy football advice. (laughs) I gotcha. Yeah. To me, that makes me feel like there's an impact and there's, more voices to what I'm sure a lot of Americans feel but don't feel represented. Well, I was really pleased to see your piece up on The Federalist. Charlottesville shows once again why blue lives matter. Go to thefederalist.com for that one. Britt McHenry is the author and a journalist, and she was kind enough to give us, uh, give us her time today. Britt, we hope you come back sometime. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. I would love to. Thank you. Uh, team, we will be going into a break here in uh, just a moment. I'm also going to have our friend uh, Rich Lowry join to give us his take on the Trump response. I, I saw over the weekend you had a uh, national review with a-, a pretty scathing editorial about how Trump responded to what happened in-, in Charlottesville. So I'll talk to Rich a bit about that. I'm also seeing a lot now on the domestic terror, defining this as domestic terrorism or a hate crime, and the the definitional nuances here are taking up a a lot of, well, certainly a lot of media time. There's a a big focus on this, so we'll perhaps get into some of that. Uh, And then later on this hour, also, uh, I have more thoughts on the whole Google firing situation with James Damore that I want to share with you. Uh, I think it's really important that we not just let this go by and, and act as though Google's just Google's not just another company that happens to think this way. Google's a company that probably more than any other influences the way all of us think. And so having such a, a rigid ideological framework in place and enforced by the folks at Google is uh, troubling, to say the least. And then Buck's Wisdom, which was unleashed this weekend. Uh, I uh, here's Here's a little preview of it. I went to a party and there were some of the young folks there, which means people, to me now, if you're in your early 20s, you know, you're, you're a youngin, you're young folks. Uh, so I talked to them about a whole bunch of things. So uh, we'll get into that too. So I've got a lot more for you this hour. If you want to call in 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, and also go to bucksexon.com uh, to read stories from the, the day. And uh, we'll be right back. Stay with me. Welcome back, everyone. Lots going on today in the news cycle, as we've been discussing. And to help us uh, take a look at Charlottesville and beyond, we've got Rich Lowry on the line. He is the editor of National Review. He's also a syndicated columnist and a commentator for Fox News. Rich, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Talk to me a bit about your piece in defense of so-called both-sidism, first, if you would. Yeah, there there has now become taboo for some folks in the media and on the left to acknowledge the frank reality that there was violence on both sides in Charlottesville. Now, it doesn't make the neo-Nazis any better, and in any contest, 
uh, of who's the worst pe people in the world. Neo-Nazis probably come out on top, but that doesn't mean that these so-called Antifa uh, activists weren't spoiling for a fight. And in fact, a lot of the video, you watch it, and it's kind of hard to tell which side is which in a lot of these battles, because both of them are wearing helmets, both of them are, are wielding flagpoles, uh, both of them are pepper spraying the other side. So th this is uh, a, a, a really ominous development, and you know it's kind of street fights, left-right street fights of the sort you associate with the 1930s Germany or Italy rather than the United States of America. But I fear we're going to see more of it rather than less. What did you think about the line that this was a uh, that referring specifically? Uh, to what happened in Charlottesville, and I know that a, a woman lost her life and 19, or she was killed, murdered, and 19 uh, were injured, that it was a grotesque act of domestic terrorism. I think it's correct. I think that's Ted Cruz's phrase, and I think it's uh, appropriate. Uh, terrorism uh, is when you have a, a, a political agenda and you undertake an, an act to uh, cause mayhem and terror. And that's what uh, this, this guy in, in the car uh, apparently did. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very disturbing. So I, would, would it be fair now, this is not what happened, but let's say in talking about Antifa and these white supremacists or neo-Nazis, I, I guess we can use them interchangeably, I don't really parse much between them, that if there was a, a fight between them and somebody was killed in that fight, that would not be terrorism, that would be a street battle between two extremist ideologies that ended with somebody dying. But in this case, because this guy just took a car and mowed down a bunch of people without regard for anything other than the fact that he was trying to kill people, I, can, I, I agree that it's a politically motivated act of violence and therefore terrorism. But there was this back and forth, as you said, of people on both on 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 two sides. I shouldn't say both sides because there were people who were nonviolent, but there were people on two sides who were being violent. This was not just a mob roaming the streets, attacking people from one part of the political spectrum. Yeah, I, I think you make and I hadn't really thought about this very much, but I think you make a useful distinction there. And perhaps the ramming of the car, although you know, I think it was premeditated enough to constitute terrorism, it was more impulsive than, say, you know, someone building a bomb and, and setting it off at, 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 God forbid, you know, in the middle of the, the ground to the University of Virginia or something like that. So, uh, but I, I still think it constitutes terrorism. Fair enough. Uh, we're speaking to Rich Lauer. He's uh, editor of National Review. Trump's response to this, now I know you guys wrote a, uh, you at National Review, the editors, you guys wrote a a, a piece where you, you, you blasted the administration pretty hard for the first the first effort at condemning this, where he did he did say, you know, this is wrong on on both sides, or you know, there's there's people uh, we condemn hatred and bigotry on many sides. What he said, which sat poorly with a lot of folks, including uh, you over National Review. Why do you think? Uh, I, I, before I give you my version of it, why do you think that Trump would make what would seem like such a an unforced error in talking about something that's pretty straightforward? I don't know. The, my speculation would be one, you know, just maybe tone deafness. Two, sometimes if polite opinion wants him to do something, he does the opposite, which isn't isn't always a bad reflex, obviously. Three, you know, he's very hesitant to criticize anyone who's supportive of him, no matter how vile the supporter is. We've seen this with Vladimir Putin, who he won't really criticize. And some of the, some of these you know, alt right people are very supportive of him. And then finally, and this would be, I think the the most nefarious explanation. And again, I'm just speculating. You know, he got his start in American politics really as a birther that worked out 
better for him than anyone would have expected. So he might have a keen appreciation for how there's a, a political energy in this fever swamp. And even if he doesn't want to be in that swamp anymore himself, he's not going to go out of, out of his way to denounce it if he can help it. Now, what do you think about the second, as you write here, Nasher, the second bite of the apple? Full-throated enough? Good enough? Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, and I think there's some nitpicking people saying, oh, he touted the jobs before he talked about this. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, uh, that's small beer. Uh, this is the right thing to say. I think it's unassailable what he said. It would have been better if he'd said it 72 hours ago. But as a sheer matter of politics, I think his statement may make his reaction to this a, a little bit more of an elite inside game where probably most people are out there, okay, you know, it took him two or three days. But he said the right thing, so what's the big deal? Um, so, uh, again, I would have preferred that he didn't have to be dragged kind of kicking and screaming to say what most of us would have, you know, just uh, um with 30 seconds thought have said in, on Twitter about the events in Charlottesville on Saturday. If I can transition us away from Charlottesville for a moment, Rich, I'm just curious about your thoughts uh, when it comes to the latest round of, of White House intrigue and uh, and the, the, the Kremlinology or the White Houseology that's going on in the background with people saying, uh, oh, there's uh, so much so much uh, being said about Bannon and so much being said about McMaster. Do you think this is just noise or are you expecting more exits? I probably expect more exits. I've never seen anything like H.R. McMaster and Meet the Press yesterday asked three times just to say he can work with Steve Bannon. Didn't say it. Uh, Refused to say Steve Bannon's name. Defined the kind of people that he could work uh, with in in a way that seemed to, uh, by implication, exclude Steve Bannon. So I don't have, you know, great inside sources. I don't have inside information, but it, it that that just felt unsustainable to me. And it would seem as though one of them would have to go. And if Kelly is with McMaster, that would seem to, to give McMaster the, the upper hand, at least for now. And right now, Congress is uh, getting a, a respite from the, the drubbing that I think they would otherwise receive, uh, particularly Republicans in Congress, because of the uh, lack of, of action on health care or the lack of result on, on health care. Where, where do you come down in the, in the Trump-McConnell squabble? You know, I, I just think there's so much blame to go around here. I think Trump's amateurism didn't help in the health care debate and probably not going to be helpful in the tax reform debate. They don't even have a specific detailed proposal from the White House uh, yet. But the professionals didn't cover themselves in glory either. And McConnell, in the, the speech that kind of set off the spat, said that Trump set unrealistic expectation. Well, it was, it was Ryan and McConnell on their own who, who told the president, hey, look, we got this. Trust us. You know, we, we've been here. We've been around a long time. We're going to do this. and We're going to do it in a couple of weeks. And it was just a crazy process. And it helped unravel the whole thing. So. Uh, I, I prefer if everyone is just kind of focus on on you know the the uh, the task ahead and trying to put some points on the board before time runs out. You know, and every hour it's it's getting it's getting later, but uh, this is the world we live in. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, check out his latest at nationalreview.com, including in defense of so-called both sideism and racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, the neo-Nazis, and white supremacists. Rich, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks so much, Buck. Team, uh, hitting a break here. We'll be right back. I want to talk to you about uh, some of the fallout from Google, as I thought more of it over the weekend. And also, uh, Buck, doing some wisdom, wisdom wisdom-splaining to the younger generation. 
How did I do that? Where did that happen? Oh, you'll hear about it. You'll hear about it for sure. Uh, 844-900-2825. Hitting a break. We'll be right back. You know, team, I was spending some more time over the weekend thinking about the fallout from the whole Google fiasco. And I actually sat down to, to write about it for American Consequences, which is an online magazine published by uh, Stansbury Research, whom I also do a podcast with. And so I'm hoping uh, you just go to uh, investorhour.com and you can download the podcast. You can also check out my uh, my written piece there for this magazine, American Consequences. But I was really thinking through how it is such a, a really troubling signal uh, to so many companies and to so many people who want to work a, well, just want to work, period, in America, but want to work in the, the corporate side of America, that uh, you now have seen not just the enforcement of such a, a rigid uh, intellectual or rigid ideological orthodoxy, but on top of that, that they, they don't care that they devolve into self-parody, that there's really no uh, self-awareness about how this whole issue of kicking somebody out of your company because they want to raise questions about the policies the company has in place for hiring, for uh, for promotion, uh, and then ho- and then holding yourself up as some kind of uh, ideas, you know, central uh, place for the spread of ideas. For I mean, Google's role in the dissemination of information, as I wrote in my piece uh, for American Consequences, which is... Uh, entitled, at least for now, might get changed before it goes out in a couple of days because titles can change. But uh, Google's the most powerful echo echo chamber on Earth. Google, the most powerful echo chamber on Earth. That's what I call the piece. And it's really true because when the ideological influences of people who have that much of a say or or that much power um, decide that they want to push the conversation in a certain direction... It's as simple as what are the search results in Google. It's as simple as who uh, is allowed to use the advertising services of Google and who is maybe a product that they or what is a product that they refuse to carry for reasons of politics. Uh, The ability to shape the conversation and to uh, play a role in directing perception that a company like Google, Google, Facebook, and Amazon are really all in their own category now as these these mega companies. Uh, they are beyond uh, anything that we had seen previously in the internet era. I mean, the closest thing would have been AOL back in the day, but you know, with AOL, with dial-up, if you could just if you managed to like get into your email successfully, you know, welcome. I mean, you know, you were in pretty good shape, right? So it was not nearly as sophisticated. We're not talking about tweaks to algorithms that everyone seems to uh, assume are somehow uh, nonpartisan and apolitical, but the algorithms are definitely privileging certain activities over others. I mean, search is all based upon uh, the decision to show you certain things before other things. I mean, the first page of Google search results is what companies live and die by in many cases. You know, if I type in, I, I've i been going through this process recently, I should know, because of my move, right? So when I say I need uh, a dish rack, 
when I type in dish rack into, and maybe I, I click on the shipping or shopping rather, well, shipping too, on the shopping icon, whatever Google gives me, if it has a couple good reviews and I can just click and buy, that's what I'm getting. That is also in many ways possible for ideas too. The first news article that pops up is the one that most people read. The first definition of a term is the one that most people will familiarize themselves with. The first explanation of a political party or belief system or radical Islam or the Arab-Israeli conflict or the civil rights movement or you name it, any area where there is real back and forth, there's a constant, uh, a constant effort at changing and battling over the history and historiography. And that's where these search platforms have immense power. That's where these search platforms can really be directing the conversation in ways that you're not even aware of, but that are very real and that are happening. And so when Google does what it did, which was to boot somebody out for their ideas, for their beliefs, when Google makes that decision uh, and then stands behind it and tells people that feel triggered, right? Oh, I'm so upset. I need to stay home from work. Tells people that feel triggered that that's okay, that, that they... Uh, that they should be made to feel safe at work by not being exposed to any ideas they don't like. I mean, this is literally a giant digital vacuum cleaner of ideas. That's what Google's supposed to be. And also it presents them. It doesn't just suck them up. It presents them. But if this is not a place where you can have free and fair expression, uh, what is the future of the rest of corporate America. And I know people say to me, Buck, there are all these good entrepreneurs and there's plenty of conservatives running businesses in countries. And yes, that's all true. But where the echo chamber effect does not take root in the company, the echo chamber effect at the level of a Google, a Facebook, an Amazon will influence government policy such that there will be uh, restrictions placed on speech. There'll be certain protected groups and non-protected groups. I mean, the, the trajectory, and this is why I was a bit annoyed at some of the libertarians I saw that were weighing in uh, right after this whole thing happened and saying, well, it's at-will employment. Anyone can get fired from at-will employment. Well, okay, but that's actually not true. There's plenty of, and by the way, there might be a lawsuit now by James De, uh, James Damore, but uh, there are plenty of places in the law where you can't just be fired because, right? These are people who are being fired, or rather, there are people who are fired, and if they fall into a certain category, they will sue and they will win. But currently in the law, if you are a white Christian male, you're pretty much out on your own. If you're a conservative, you're out on your own, meaning... You get fired just for saying, I, I, let's just ask the question, can you get fired for a company from saying you voted for Trump? Think about that for a moment. Can you legally be fired from a company for saying you voted for Trump? Because if you have a company that says that you will only hire people who are, you know, who believe in traditional marriage, you'll get sued, right? But if you have a company that says, uh, if you have a company where people, and the person suing will, will win, but if you have a company where someone says they voted for Trump and they get fired, can they sue? I mean... Yeah, of course they can sue, but will they win? So it's not even just the perception, it's also the law that comes out of that. And that's where I think you, that's where all of us have to engage. Whatever company you work for, whatever business you're in, if you're interacting with an employer or employees, the Google effect in terms of the political ideological echo chamber is affecting you. There is no escape from this. There is no, I'm, I'm going to retreat into my own world and I don't have to worry 
about what happened to James De- James Damore. And no, no, that was just a symptom, a very high profile instance of a much more widespread phenomenon. And it's one that uh, we need to really call out and, and we need a national discussion over this because we can't have all these protected groups and workplace enforcement and laws and regulations that protect some, but don't protect uh, political affiliation, uh, don't protect First Amendment protected uh, activities. Uh, so, I mean, th- that's the way the left wants it, by the way, of course. They want this to just be about enshrining identity politics, both in culture and in law. And that's what Google's all about. But they, they have doubled down on it. They are not stepping away from it at all, no matter how childish and foolish and nonsensical they are with this stuff. I mean, everything is free at Google if you work there. You get you know free Wi-Fi, free naps, free lunches, free rides home, but not free speech. Not free speech. Uh, I want to talk to you in just a moment here about me spreading wisdom to the younger generation. Stay with me for that. Welcome back, team. You know, in New York City, you rarely get to uh, become particularly close with your neighbors. I know for some of you that is just bizarre because, you know, you live in uh, a street that, you know, all your neighbors and, you know, you're you go to school together or your kids go. I'm sorry, your kids go to school together or you have them over for drinks or barbecues. But in New York, we're all in such close proximity that usually you don't have uh, much, if any, interaction with people who live mere feet away from you. You, you perhaps see them in the building on the way out. You know, here we live in apartment buildings. If you lived in a house where you could measure acreage in New York City, uh, you would probably have to be a billionaire. Uh, But we live in these large cement, vertical cement boxes known as apartment buildings. And we see each other, but we tend not to get involved in each other's business. Well, there was an exception to that for me this weekend. I was in town alone, still moving out of boxes and finding some really fascinating stuff by clearing out my desk drawer. I realized that in high school in one year, I gained from sophomore to junior year based on my medical records. I had my high school medical records somehow in my desk, and I saw that I gained 23 pounds. So I went from lean and mean sophomore buck to cuddly, perfectly plump junior in high school buck. Uh, but, you know, you just I saw all this fun stuff from way back in the old, really old photos. Maybe I'll post one on a throwback Thursday. One of the old photos that I found, I found a bunch of them. But in the meantime, uh, or, you know, while I was getting ready to pack, continue to pack all the bags up and get out of get all my stuff out of my apartment, you know, with the move and everything, uh, my neighbors uh, saw me in the hallway and they're they're uh, very nice uh, actually, it's a brother, a sister, and a girlfriend who kind of lives with them. It's a very New York setup, right? So it's three people that are in the apartment all the time, but really only two of them technically live there. Uh, and they're really nice people, uh, very, very friendly, uh, and about uh, a decade younger than me. Uh, they just happened to live down the hallway, so we were chatting a little bit. And they said they were having some people over, and they were celebrating a birthday, a 24th birthday, and, you know, that I'm invited and, and uh, my girlfriend w- was invited, too. And so, you know, we could uh, Molly. And so we could go. Molly was out of town. But I said, hey, look, I'll, I'll stop by and have a drink. You know, I, I can be a, a social guy. You know, I can talk to people and tell them stories. And it's great because I'm in New York. So no one I, I'm 99 percent sure that nobody at this party watches Fox News, 
listens to talk radio uh, is conservative or even, well, maybe they're political, but very unlikely just based on the numbers here in the city that they'd be someone familiar with uh, with me or, or my work. So it's fun because I get to just show up and have the, uh, you know, the, the complete anonymity of being a guy who says I work in media, which in New York can mean a lot of things. So I was there. I'm there at this party. And uh, yeah, that's right. I was drinking uh, rosé out of a plastic cup, you know, a solo cup, red cup, because that's what one does at a party when one's, you know, in, in their early to mid 20s. And people were being very friendly and everything. And I realized that after a while, I had a little a little gathering. You know, I, I was sitting. They actually had a, a bit of outdoor space, which is very nice here in New York City. They had their own private little deck uh, overlooking part of, well, overlooking another building, but it was a deck. And I'm sitting there, and I had a, a gathering, and, and I started weighing in on, you know, well, you know, you should, how many of you are married? And, you know, you, you, should, uh, you should really think, about you know, what your future is going to be and you know, your career. And I realized over the course of this, this party, and I was there maybe for, a, I don't know, a couple of hours. Very nice people. I actually spoke with a, a female software engineer who told me that she was one of, I think there were 10 software engineers at her company and eight of the 10 were women. So she thought that whole Google memo fiasco was, was particularly amusing because she's like, my whole team is women and that's just the way that it worked out. Uh, of, of software engineers, and they all went to very fancy schools for uh, for computer science and everything else. Anyway, back to me sitting there. So I realized that I had now become the guy. I was the oldest guy at the party, definitely, and I was the guy who was had had a bunch of young people. Young people. I'm even saying this. They're only ten years younger than me, but I had young people in a little semicircle, and I'm dispensing life advice. And I, I mean, I'm I'm just laying it down, and I'm like, you know, you gotta pick. You got to pick something that you love and you go in that direction and don't get so caught up in the money early on. And, you know, I'm just giving them all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm telling them, you know, play the field when you're young because you only want to get married once. Don't be one of these people that's getting married, you know, five, six times. It's really expensive and it's not a good idea. So, you know, I'm just going, I'm just laying it all down. And, and I kind of realized that this was the first time that I think I've ever been at a party and I was the old man sitting on the sitting on the rocking chair it actually was a, a swinging a swing chair so it's kind of like I'm, i was the old guy sitting on a rocking chair dispensing advice to the whippersnappers who are my neighbors who are having a very loud party so i'm glad that i was invited because otherwise i would have heard all the music anyway so at least this way i got to have some have some wine and, and meet my neighbors uh, but, you know, dispensing advice on life, neighborhoods they should live in New York City, restaurants they should go, date spots they should take people out to. I mean, it was great. I was like, oh, to be 23 or 24, 25 years old again in New York City or any city or anywhere in the country. Oh, man, I would be I would be having an absolute ball. I would just be having a great time. And I was trying to impart upon them. You know, seize this period in your life. You know, it's just a great time for you to really enjoy yourself and pursue. You got your whole life ahead of you. And I realized I really was the guy. I'm like, I might as well have been in a a plastic, you know, Adirondack style chair out on my lawn, you know, yelling at the kids, telling about the good old days. And it was a real moment for me. You know, I realized that this is. I'm now I'm now an adult. I, I live in an apartment with more than one room and I go to parties where I'm the oldest person there and I'm giving everybody life advice. I will say 
they liked the life advice. So at least there was that. They they found Buck's wisdom to be wise. They they seem to they seem to enjoy my uh, my my tidbits of uh, of life philosophy and the way that I think that I would approach being 25 again. I mean, I, I do say this. If I could go back now as a 35-year-old, go back to being 25, even better, like 19 or 20, man, there are some things that I would do uh, that I wish I had known then, wish I'd known what to focus on and what, you know, not to get distracted by things that are so uh, ephemeral, you know, that short-term stuff that doesn't really matter and you get all bogged down in that nonsense and, you know, perception of where you are vis-a-vis your peer group when you're 22 who cares just run your own race man that's what i was saying run your own race don't get caught up in everything else anyway i, I was i was having fun with the uh the youngins the uh the young ones uh having a chat with them and you know out there on saturday night and of course it came time for them to go clubbing i think and it was about 11 p.m and i was like well it is bedtime for mr sexton over here i'm I'm going to be signing off now, and uh, it was great. I got to just go next door, change into my PJs, throw on the Netflix, and hang out Buck style. So I, I really enjoyed it. Anyway, that was so I'm, I'm getting acclimated into my new place, and I'm dispensing life wisdom to, uh, to the younger generation. Uh, please do, speaking of life wisdom, download the podcast. Buck Sexton with America Now is the name of it on iTunes. Of course, that's the name of the show. Uh, also, BuckSexton.com slash store. You can get all kinds of great gear there. T-shirts, hats, paraphernalia of the Freedom Hut. Uh, and do please check out our sponsors, uh, BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. Uh, that, I, I'm drinking Black Rifle every day. And by supporting our, our sponsor, going to the URL, uh, you're supporting the show as well. Because you know, it's a relationship that we really like to, to build. And, and I really appreciate our sponsors. So uh, with all that, we're going to have a very busy week here in the Freedom Hunt. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Uh, An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, Team Buck. Until tomorrow, shields high.